Life is hard. We perhaps want to think that isn't the case, but again and again, the universe rises up to show us we're wrong. It's true that we will love, but so too is it true that we will face loss. There will be times when we feel the energy of health, but those will inevitably be replaced by periods of illness and infirmity. And if we're lucky, we will at some point experience a great success, but only to have that tempered later by an unexpected or perhaps unavoidable failure. Such is the human condition, and try as we might to wish it were otherwise, there is no escaping these essential truths. What then are we to do other than embrace our fate and prepare as best we can for what assuredly lies before us? And in that endeavor, where better to turn for comfort, insight, and wisdom than the great minds of philosophy that came before us? Our guest is Kieran Setia, professor of philosophy at MIT and author, most recently, of Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Kieran's writings have appeared in London Review of Books, The New York Times, and elsewhere. Some of you may also remember him from season two when we had the privilege to talk with him about his first book, Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. Kieran's unique and thoughtful writings and teachings won't necessarily make life any less hard, but they will give you some tools, frameworks, and perspective to think differently about the challenges of life. And in the end, what more could we really ask for? This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to live it better. I'm Bob Baxley. I'm Meredith Black. I'm Aaron Walter. And we'll be right back with Kieran Setia. Hey, Aaron Walter here. Bob, Meredith, and I are so excited by the reception that Reconsidering has received from listeners. Turns out people are really enjoying the show. We're working really hard to bring you conversations from best-selling authors and deep thinkers who have insights that can help you find satisfaction in your work and your life. If you found the show meaningful and useful, we have a small ask. We hope that you can help us grow the community by just leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Yes, they now have podcast reviews too. Wherever you listen, just search for Reconsidering in the podcast directory and leave us a quick review. This will help others find the show. It's also really helpful for Bob and Meredith and me to get your feedback as it'll help us refine the show. Our sincere, deepest thanks in advance for your support. Now, let's get back to the show. Hi, I'm Kieran Setia. I teach philosophy at MIT, and my new book is called Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Okay, here we go. City or country? Ooh, I guess if I had to decide city. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Quiet night at home or night on the town? Quiet night at home. Protest or petition? Protest. Lecture or seminar? I'd rather give a seminar and get to talk to people, but I quite like hearing lectures and just relaxing. Hmm. Diogenes or Plato? Diogenes. Long shot or sure thing? Sure thing. Comedy or tragedy? Comedy. Time or money? Time. Thinking or doing? Thinking. Hope or courage? Courage. Nice. Thanks. Kieran, what's struck me about this book, which I thoroughly enjoyed, is profoundly personal. And there are a lot of very personal stories for framing these ideas of philosophy. Each chapter tackles a distinct topic that's very germane to the human experience and trying to navigate the difficult parts of life. I wonder if, you know, you were writing this during a pandemic and for many people, I think the pandemic sort of like, if our feet weren't on the ground before, they certainly were when the pandemic hit and, you know, everything got very real. Did that play a role in the way that you approached this book? It definitely did. The basic idea of writing a book about the good life that was about what philosophical reflection on how to live would look like if it started with the fact that life is hard and sort of never lost touch with that reality and that the best life is often, if not always, out of reach. But yeah, the pandemic really brought that into focus. And it also made it seem less narcissistic in a way. I and mean, there's a sort of sense in which some of the book is about my own personal struggles. But in the pandemic, I was just 
very vividly aware of the pervasiveness of suffering in other people's lives. Probably I should have been aware of this more earlier on, but the pandemic made it unignorable. And things like loneliness and grief and the difficulties of dealing with grief and isolation were just suddenly writ large in the world. And so I wanted to write a book that both confronted that moment, but also addressed this timeless philosophical question about how to live. And this idea that you should focus on the best life. I mean, it has kind of pop culture formations where people talk about finding your bliss or the power of positive thinking. But there is actually a long tradition of this in the history of Western philosophy. So often when philosophers engage in political philosophy, they start with a vision of utopia, as in Plato's Republic. And Aristotle, in Plato's student writing in his ethics, starts with a vision of the ideal life, like the life you could have or the life you would choose if you could choose any life at all. And there's a way in which that's just detached from the actual practical questions most of us are confronting, which is, how do I deal with this breakup? Or how do I make friends now that I've moved to a new town and I feel all alone? Or how do I deal with failure in my life? And I think philosophy has a lot to contribute to grappling with those issues. But I do think it's going to look a little bit less like coming up with a philosophical theory or an abstract argument and then just applying it. And a much more like being in the weeds of describing what those problems are actually like. And that's where I think personal essay and my own experience have come in. Because I think that sort of you, you can use yourself, I can use myself, one can use oneself as a, a case study of actually describing one's experiences. And, you know, you relate to things to different degrees. But those kinds of descriptions sort of give you a purchase that I think philosophers don't make enough use of often. You talk about, you know, right off the bat, first chapter, chronic illness. And this is something that I'm so happy that you are here to talk with us about because I've actually been looking for someone to talk about with chronic illness. You know, I suffer from chronic migraines. And so it's debilitating and life-altering, but it doesn't mean that your life stops. And you talk about that a little bit in the first chapter. I'd love to hear your experience of, you know, what you've gone through and kind of how you've been able to cope with it. When I was 27, I started to have a kind of chronic, acute, or like sort of intense pain in my groin. It was not the most uh, dignified of chronic pain conditions to have. And it took quite a long time to figure out the helpfully unhelpful diagnosis that, yes, you have chronic pelvic pain. This is going to continue. No, we don't have any treatments. I mean, there were things that it, I tried that didn't really work. And so the prognosis was, this continues, live with it. And it flares up and it declines. Sometimes it's not so bad. Sometimes it's like impossible to sleep through. And then I think the sleep deprivation is one of the hardest things. I don't know if, the, don't know if this happens to you with migraines. Like I feel like not being able to sleep for long stretches just screws up everything. And that's the hardest part of it. But I was very <laughs> sort of interested in this question, why is this so bad? And one of the ways in which that felt pointed to me is that maybe migraines are just like completely debilitating. For me, a lot of the day, I can sort of just carry on doing what I'm doing. And I'm struck by the thought, if this was just temporary, I wouldn't worry about it. If I knew that I was only going to have a day of this, I'd just get on with my day and it wouldn't be that big a deal. The problem is I'm going to have another day of it and another day of it and another day of it. And I think part of what I began to understand about, about the kind of chronic pain I have is that it's temporal structure, the way in which it distorts your relationship to your own future and makes it seem like there's nothing to sort of hope for and also distorts your relationship to your past. So it gives you a kind of inability to really remember what it was like to be in a pain-free condition, to really access that. Those are, for me, the hardest aspects of it. And so one of the strategies I talk about in the book for dealing with this kind of chronic pain is to it's like it's like the Kimmy Schmidt rule. I don't know if you mm -hmm. you know the the, yeah. the uh the sitcom in which she I guess she's trapped for 15 years and she her mantra is you can stand anything for 10 seconds. And there's something to that. Like 10 seconds may be a bit of a too short a unit. But for me, I think just think about today. Today's gonna be a pretty good day on balance. And then think about tomorrow, tomorrow. And if you can sort of live each day in its sort of self-contained own right, I think that can really minimize some of the challenges of dealing with this kind of condition. Although I do think different chronic pain conditions are different. So I wouldn't want, I think migraine, I would have to sort of learn from you exactly what the challenges are. Yeah. One of the questions I have, and I don't know if you experience this, but 
when you have a chronic illness, you don't want to kind of run around and tell everyone you have a chronic illness. You just kind of want to be a normal human being, right? You just want people to treat you normal. But at the same time, if it's an invisible illness that people don't see, it's hard because if you don't articulate it, they can't understand. And I, I'm just wondering if there's a way that we can do better, right? And that like we can articulate it without being, hey, this is just a me problem, but this is a large part of the population that's dealing with something so big that we just don't see. How do we put on our like empathy cap, so to speak, to get there? How do we get people to think about that in a different way or to be more cognizant as we are being more cognizant of a lot of stuff that's out there right now, right? I think this is a great question. And I think it reminds me of an experience I have that sometimes looking at other people and thinking with this sort of mean-spirited envy, I, I bet you're not experiencing pain right now. And then thinking, what do I know? You know, who knows what they're experiencing right now, emotionally, migraines. Actually, the lesson I should be learning from chronic pain is not a kind of self-pity that man, I've got it so hard, but just the lesson that invisible illness teaches, which is a lot of the time people are going through things that you're just not able to be aware of unless they share them. And so what to do about that is a really good question. I mean, one thing about writing about this that I found very interesting and I still don't fully understand is I think there's a kind of level on which writing about this experience was really helpful to me. I kind of thought it's going to be a little bit embarrassing I'll get it out of the way. Like anyone who wants to know will know. Like it's it's written in a book now. I no longer have to think, oh God, do I tell someone why I'm so exhausted right now or why I'm running to the bathroom again or like what's going on? No, I can say, you know, if you want some background on what's going on, it's out there. So that's useful to me. But I think there's also a kind of desire in writing this kind of book to just raise awareness of the very issue that there are these forms of chronic pain that you probably don't really think about what some 20 to 40% of Americans yeah, have some kind of chronic pain high. or chronic health condition. It's huge. And it varies from migraines to chronic pelvic pain to lower back pain. Part of the desire to write about it is to raise awareness and to share this and to try and dilute other people's embarrassment and awkwardness about talking about this kind of condition. There's also something else that I think is more elusive, and I hope it generalizes to other people. I don't know that for me, the sheer fact of sort of putting it into words and saying it's now this sort of concrete reality that there's a description that I'm now at arm's length from, even apart from the communicative aspect that involves other people, there's something very helpful for me about that. So again, I don't know that it would work for everyone to write about it, but there is something about just describing what's going on, even to yourself, that I think can be helpful in getting through this. And this is a, another big theme of the book, I suppose, is that when you're dealing with something difficult, acknowledgement is hugely important. Sometimes you can just close your eyes and be an ostrich and get over it. But often forms of brushing it off or saying it's all going to be fine or here's a quick fix are just ways of avoiding a reality that you're going to have to live with and come to terms with if you're going to have as good a life as is possible in the circumstances. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that with acknowledgement too, because I think one of the things that we do as a society that maybe it's cultural, but when you ask somebody how they're doing, nine times out of 10, you're going to hear, I'm doing great, or I'm okay, or I'm good. You never hear like, oh, you know what? I've been down with a migraine because you never want to put somebody else in an awkward position, right? And maybe that is the trick. And maybe that's what people have to do who do experience chronic pain is getting the voice out there, right? Getting your voice out there, making sure that people kind of understand it. Because if they don't understand it and they're constantly hearing, oh, I'm okay, how are they going to know any different, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think one thing about sharing it with people, which I haven't done face-to-face -face that much. I mean, a weird thing about writing the book is like I've told in my life a handful of people and now I'm like, hey, random stranger, here's this intimate history of my medical life. But when I do share it with people, very often there's immediate solidarity. Like someone else says, oh, you know, I have, like as with you, there's someone says, yeah, you know, I have this other thing. It's kind of different, but here's how it's difficult. And that solidarity is extremely valuable and comforting to both of us. In a way, I kind of think, you're right, when someone asks you, how are you doing? You don't want to burden them. I wish there were two questions you could ask. You could sort of say to someone, how are you doing? Or how are you doing for real? And like, you could sort of signal, signal when you ask the question, are we just making polite conversation? Or is this a genuine 
kind of expression of concern in which I am open to those things. And then the person has sort of opened the door. And we don't really have the straightforward resources to signal which of those two were doing always. And yeah, it, it's tricky. The interesting thing is now it's becoming much more common to say, hi, my name is Meredith Black. My pronouns are she, her, right? Yeah. That is like becoming very common, very normal. I mean, it's starting to become normalized, which I think is great. It's like, how can we take that a step forward and be like, hi, my name's Meredith Black. My pronouns are she and her. Like maybe I'm a seven out of 10 today because I'm just not feeling like mentally fit or like mentally up to this conversation. It's like, how can we calibrate this stuff better to have better conversations with people? Yeah, I love that idea. I mean, one thing I love about the seven out of 10 is that it's sort of, it's revealing, but it allows you to withhold a lot. You don't have to say why, you don't have to share information you don't want. I mean, I think this is about the pronouns thing. I think I've sort of shifted in classes with students to asking, please tell me your pronouns if you want to. So no one has to, no one has to sort of be stressed that they're being outed or worried about it, but everyone is invited to do it. I'm comfortable doing it. And, th- and so I think sort of setting up situations where people can offer the information that is useful. And if they want to say more, they can, but they do not feel like they're being sort of forced to overshare. I like that the number rating system is is great. How about you and I try it for like the next six months and we'll report back? We'll see. We'll do a little study. Yeah, exactly. We'll do a little study. <laughs> Yeah, some of this reminds me when we had Brad Stolberg on the show back in season one. He, in the context of the interview, shared that he had had a pretty lengthy struggle with OCD, which he had talked about, and he talked about it in his book. But I think actually in the context of the conversation, he opened up a little bit more about it. And he subsequently written pieces that were in the New York Times about it. I think there is that moment of vulnerability and embarrassment or concern of embarrassment when you open up. And, and always it does seem to lead to kind of the solidarity. You know, And I had a similar experience. I was talking to a group of folks and, and mentioned my struggles with ADHD. And the chat log just like lit up, you know, with, hey, thanks for sharing and stuff. And and reading that, you know, your first chapter about infirmity, you also talk a lot about people with physical disabilities that are visible. And you know, that's such an interesting contrast because people struggling with mental health, which was a lot of the pandemic, obviously, and an enormous issue for young adults and teenagers today and lots of other people as well. And then the kind of the invisible conditions that you and Meredith struggle with, you know, people in wheelchairs or old people like that's a really different kind of experience of pain and infirmity because it's so visible. That's absolutely right. And this, you know, there are good things and bad things about that. It sort of opens you it means you don't have to communicate certain things about your condition, but it also opens you up to all kinds of potential prejudice and exclusion. And so, you know, there are definitely pros and cons. And I think there's also this a kind of useful distinction between, I think, you know, pain conditions, there's just this positive, unpleasant thing that with aging and physical disability, what's going on is this sort of negative, privative thing that there's all kinds of abilities that are being withdrawn from your life. And I think you know, there's this a movement in disability studies that I, I draw on in the book to try to resist the idea that that necessarily makes life worse. It's a kind of puzzling claim because on the one hand, it's important to recognize that these are harms and difficulties that should be accommodated. But at the same time, there's something right about this and the sort of the social science suggests that actually people are surprisingly adaptable to the loss of certain kinds of capacities, provided it's not too pervasive. And I think one of the things I tried to do in the book is to sort of think through the philosophical foundations of that. And part of the philosophical foundation has to do with the idea that we have to get away from thinking that a good life has everything. In fact, even the best lives anyone has are sort of partial and selective. There's not room in life for you to have everything. Like, I wish I could sing. I can't sing. That's a good thing I'm losing out on. And it seems kind of trivializing to compare that to a disability. But there's a way in which not being able to access good things is just the human condition. How significantly that affects your life varies a lot. But it doesn't, in general, prevent you from finding enough other good things in your life to have a really worthwhile, meaningful life. And I think that's a case where sort of misconceptions about how to live that have to do with this sort of idealizing tendency are distorting both in sort of attitudes of pity towards people with physical disabilities and attitudes of fear and anxiety about the incremental disabilities of aging that we, in fact, are quite likely to adapt to much better than we fear. And not because we're going to you know, be subject to some illusion or just forget what we're missing, but because there's so much in life that you can find to do that's valuable that 
when some things are withdrawn, it's often still possible, if not, maybe not always, but often still possible to find a rich life despite that. And those are cases where kind of philosophical reflection on how to live really connects with practical questions about how to come to terms with and how society should sort of engage with physical disability. Just to put a finer point on this topic, in the book, you pull apart three definitions, disease, illness, and disability, and you talk about their relationship to a good life. Can you just articulate how you see those? Yeah, so that people in the philosophy of medicine have sort of slightly different versions of this, but there's sort of a rough consensus around the idea that something like, if you think of health in terms of the sort of normative functioning of your body and its parts and so on. You can think of disease as dysfunction of some kind, and then think of illness as the effect of that, the negative effect of that on lived experience. And those two are different. So you could have a significant disease like type 1 diabetes, and if it's well-treated and well-managed, minimal illness results. Or you could have a minor disease like dysentery that has massive health effects because you don't have have treatment. And in the case of disability, the thing to start with is that really it's analogous to disease. It's It's a kind of description of some kind of part or operation of the body that doesn't have a kind of function that normatively that part of the body has. Always a further question, what kind of effect that has on lived experience the effects are always mediated by luck and social circumstance. So how much of an impact on your life it has that your legs are not functioning in a certain way depends on whether you have access to a wheelchair, whether there are ramps. And so seeing those two things come apart just helps to sort of focus on the ways in which you know, disability is never going to be automatically negative. It's how it affects us and how it affects our lives that is the question. And Aaron, you probably have more thoughts about this than I do. I mean, I I think the questions about how the environment is built and how it's designed are kind of transformative for human well-being in relation to these kinds of physical disabilities. And also in ways I don't really try to explore in the book, I think in relation to people's emotional and other vulnerabilities. I mean, this goes back to what Meredith said, like part of what those changes in social interaction will be doing will be trying to change the social environment so that it's more adaptive for certain kinds of kind of difficulties people are facing, in this case, invisible pain. So yeah, I think those distinctions sort of help us to illuminate how much of the situation we can change and where the real problems are. I'm curious, one of the next chapters in your book is about loneliness. And I think it's kind of interesting timing how you started talking about chronic illness and then shifted into loneliness. And I think there's probably a reason, right? People who have chronic illness or have something that might be undiagnosed or people don't see, like it can be very lonely, right? Like, unless like you, I think getting it out and writing it has has obviously been really helpful. How do you look at loneliness now? I guess being from someone who's had chronic pain, but also maybe shifting this conversation, maybe just in general with what's happened in the last few years with everybody feeling lonely. Yeah, this was a topic that I was sort of unavoidable during the pandemic. I'd always planned to try to say something about it. But suddenly, we were facing this sort of induced epidemic of loneliness that I was part of. And I guess you guys started a podcast. I also started a podcast. This was the cli- the cliched response was <laughs> start a podcast, apparently. And, uh, and that definitely helped. I mean, one of the things I sort of discovered, there was sort of some surprises in trying to research both the philosophical side of this and also the social science. I mean, some of the surprises were that I think I had the impression that loneliness was sort of pre-pandemic already epidemic and increasing, and that that was kind of historically due to individualism and capitalism. And There may be elements of truth in that story, but one thing I found was that there were these sort of very widely cited studies. There's, I think, a 2006 study in the American Sociological Review that has this headline statistic that the number of people who say they have no one to talk to about important matters tripled from 1985 to 2004, I think, which is shocking. And that made headlines everywhere. What didn't make headlines was that the sociologist Claude Fisher said, that seems surprisingly large. I wonder if this is a glitch in the way they collected the data. And then when they reran the study in 2010 and readjusted, they had adjusted the order of the questions and they flipped it back. People were being primed by the way the questions were framed to say something more negative. And then suddenly in 2010, 
this all reversed. And so he wrote a whole book called Still Connected, arguing that we shouldn't panic too much about the rise of loneliness. The evidence is still unclear. And similarly, looking at the history of loneliness, where the term enters the dictionary in 1800, and there's a kind of neat narrative on which, as industrial capitalism takes hold in the 19th century, people become atomized and separated from one another. Again, it's very unclear that the historical narrative really works that way. Actually, there's kind of separation of the world of commerce from people's personal lives seems to have made room for kinds of friendship for pleasure and enjoyment that were much harder to achieve in the Middle Ages. So I think on the empirical side, I was thinking this is really much more complicated than I thought. I was working on this before the pandemic, and I was about to say, you know, so loneliness is not as big a problem as we all think. Okay, then the pandemic hits, and I think, okay, <laughs> clearly loneliness is a huge problem. So on the philosophical side, I think the the short answer, and then I'll, I'll pause because th- this raises a lot of questions, was there's a lot of social science on the effects of loneliness, and they're scary in terms of health, that it's equivalent to obesity or smoking or high blood pressure in terms of its effects. And it has it prompts the same kinds of immune responses as fight or flight. And I think those things all seem like serious concerns from the point of view of public health. But in a way, they're not really focused on the harm of loneliness itself. They're all side effects. I mean, if you told me you're going to be just as lonely, but it won't have any bad health effects, I would think, well, thanks, but I would still <laughs> like some friends, basically. Yeah. And so I think the way in which sort of philosophy gives a, a kind of perspective that gets deeper into the nature of the problem is to say the fundamental problem of loneliness is lack of relationships and lack of meaningful relationships. So the question is, okay, why do relationships matter to us? What's the significance of relationships in our lives, which is something philosophers have written about? And also, how do we get them? Like, What do you do to try and build relationships when you're in a state of, of isolation? Yeah, one of the things that struck me about the chapter with loneliness is that, you know, obviously grief and infirmity, like those are truly part of the human condition. Like you're not going to be able to escape your body aging or pain or losing others. Loneliness almost seemed more like a cultural choice. Like it was not inherent to the human condition. We aren't all necessarily going to experience loneliness. It's the environment that we're living in, the cultural choices we're making, and that of the different topics in the book, it seems like the one where we have a tremendous amount of individual agency. And we do stuff like start a podcast. You know, I've started some other groups online. I've actually been probably more connected to people after the pandemic than I was before because I can see people online and it's all been really useful. The offline stuff's gotten great as well. But do you agree with that, that like loneliness perhaps isn't really part of the human condition? That's a really interesting point. I think, and that's, I think, connects with the fact that in the book and in my thinking about this, when it comes to loneliness, what I try to offer are sort of ways to avoid it, like ways to make friends, like how to think about friendship philosophically and what does that tell us about how to make friends, how to get out of this bad place you're in. Whereas with grief, the idea of saying, here's how to avoid grief. That wouldn't be how I would approach it. There are philosophers who I, I'm sort of skeptical of, stoic philosophers who say the right thing to do is to understand the world in such a way that you never grieve for anyone because you never have that kind of attachment. I think, no, the kind of attachment that generates grief, the kind that helps you get over loneliness, is actually valuable. You don't want to extinguish grief from your life. So the kind of advice you can offer there can only be given that you want to experience grief. I mean, you want to in the sense that you want to have the kind of attachments that leave you vulnerable to it. And once you do, as you say, it's going to happen. How do you think about and work through it? And you're right, loneliness is different. You can make friends and then you can avoid or or limit it. I mean, I think most of us are going to be lonely at times and it's not easy to imagine someone who never feels lonely. But I think it doesn't have to be a major part of your life in the same way of a good life in the same way that I think grief really has to be a, a significant part of a, of a full life. Meredith, I've recently become a really big fan of Athletic Greens and their product AG1. Have you tried it, Meredith? Yeah, I've tried it. And I have to say, I look forward to taking it every day now. Yeah, for me, you know, the idea of having one super research drink that has everything I need, it's got all the vitamins and minerals that I need, prebiotics, probiotic. It's good for gut health. You're keeping your immune system tuned up and just like feeling your best. 
The idea of that being in one single drink that I can take every day in the morning is very attractive. Yeah. And you know what else I really love is that AG1 is just one scoop that you put in eight ounces of water. It's not like you have to go out and buy a million different supplements and keep taking all of these pills. You've just got everything in one scoop. So it's so nice and convenient. And it's also so much more affordable. And it actually tastes good too. I mean, I enjoy drinking it every morning along with my coffee. And when I travel, you know, they give you these great travel packs so I can just slip it in my duffel bag when I'm visiting family, going on vacation. I've got it with me, so I'm always at my best. So if you're curious and want to check out Athletic Greens like Aaron and I and their AG1 formula, there's no better time to do it than now. You'll get a year's supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five travel packs for free. So go to athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering and get your AG1 today. That's athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering. Now back to the show. In the book, you mentioned the difference between loneliness and solitude. What's the difference? Well, so I, I think of solitude as a sort of descriptive thing that you're on your own or you're not thinking about or being in relation to other people. Whereas think of loneliness as the negative condition. So loneliness, one way to think about it is we're social animals and we have certain kinds of social needs. They vary from person to person. And when those needs are frustrated, we suffer. And loneliness is sort of the name of the suffering of frustrated social need. And so the way to think about how to overcome that is to think, well, how should we understand this social need? And I think of it as, in a sense, a need for friendship. I think there's no perfect word for what I have in mind here, because I think relationships with family, who you'd often distinguish from friends, can fight loneliness. Romantic relationships can fight loneliness. We might not ordinarily call those people friends. So we need a word, I'm going to use the word friends in this broad sense, that includes family or close to romantic partners. The thought is, that somehow satisfies a need. How does it satisfy it and what is the need? And I think a very big shift in how to think about that in the history of philosophy that I want to draw on is the shift from thinking of friendship as primarily meritocratic, as if the satisfaction of friendship is knowing that you're awesome because someone else has appraised you as awesome, which is broadly speaking how Aristotle thinks about it, although awesome was not in his vocabulary, but roughly that's the picture, to a, a shift in which we think, no, really, the value of friendship lies in the inherent value of the people who are friends. Love and friendship involve recognizing the value of another person in a way independent of their particular merits. They don't have to earn it. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. Like Part of what's reassuring and comforting about being loved is the thought, they love me despite all my faults. It doesn't, in fact, matter if I screw up. That's not the issue here. I'm not trying to impress this person. Love is not about impressing someone. And I think that shift also helps us to understand what's so difficult about loneliness. Because if it's sort of your value as a human being that's at stake, then if it's not really being recognized or realized there's a sense in which you think, I'm just not really existing in the human world at all. Like The value that it sort of cries out for a certain kind of appreciation from others is not getting it. And that, I think, is part of what's difficult about loneliness. This is super interesting. And the idea of loneliness being you know, a, a lack of being seen, because loneliness can be, it can manifest itself when you're at a party, like when you're hanging out with other people, and you can still feel a great sense of loneliness. And I think in the book, you also had a quote from someone who had been in solitary confinement for a very long time, and how they just felt like their life kind of disappeared. They disappeared to themselves because they didn't have some reflection back. So let's presume listeners are not in solitary confinement. How might they navigate loneliness? What are the tactics to fight that? So this was a case where the kind of philosophical story about friendship that I was telling, in a way, yielded a prediction. And the prediction was there's a continuity. Loving someone involves sort of truly appreciating in a kind of positive way their value as a human being, the value that we all have as human beings, then there's a way in which what it's responding to is the very same thing we respond to when we feel compassion for a stranger or just 
respect for someone else in our environment, someone else we're just treating decently or acknowledging. And so the thought is, those things are different, but the differences are ones of degree, or they're different sort of melodies sung in the same key. They're different registers of the same value being recognized. So what that predicts is that divisions between them are in a certain way porous. And it turns out that the psychologists who work on loneliness, John Cacioppo is one who I, who's been really influential here, have a very similar kind of suggestion about how to deal with loneliness. The thought is the value of the friendship lies in them, not in how they relate to you. And this is something that can seem subtle, but it comes out in the ordinary frictions of friendship where it really matters whether someone you know, visits you in hospital for your sake or because they're trying to shore up the friendship or save the friendship or something. So what you want to do is sort of think about the other person. And that's something we do whenever we acknowledge someone through compassion or respect. And so the tactics that he suggests work involve sort of in a way stopping worrying about feeding your own needs and just starting to attend to other people in a way that sort of signals recognition of them and invites a signal of recognition of you back. And that these small moments of acknowledgement are in a, a way forms of recognition of the value you have as a human being and the value someone else has as a human being that seem very distant from close friendship, but are really different only in that they're not yet sort of developed and built up into the kind of rich texture of friendship. They're responses to the very same value. And again, there's a lot of evidence in sort of social science suggesting that merely interacting with people, strangers in sort of brief, polite, curious, thoughtful ways already starts to mitigate the feelings of loneliness, and, and if they reciprocate, which they do to a, an amazingly high proportion, already starts to mitigate the feelings of loneliness and isolation that we can experience when we're in the depths of loneliness. So there's the sort of path from there to real friendship, but even those initial steps are sort of answers to the sort of not being seen phenomenon that you are pointing to at a kind of small scale. And then you, you got to scale up, but that's already something. And thinking of it in terms of recognizing someone else, not wanting something from them for yourself is something that both the, the sort of philosophical picture of friendship and I think the psychology really supports. So Kieran, you hit on a bunch of phrases there that are from one of the two sentences that I highlighted from the book. I highlighted many sentences from the book, but I've got them here and I'm in my notes and I just want to read them out because it's such a great quote and it's such a beautifully written book. And this is emblematic, I think, of the whole thing. The quote is, respect, compassion, and love are all ways of asserting that someone matters. They are melodies sung in the same key. And I just thought that was such a beautiful way of talking about our relationship to others, and we just have to value them for being them. To your point, it's not meritocratic. Friendship is not a transaction. It is truly, deeply, deeply a relationship where you have to take the other person for their goods and their bads. And in turn, they take you for your goods and bads as well. And that's what actually makes it a friendship. I mean, I think that is, I think, a kind of deep insight into friendship. It's certainly one that I, I really believe in. And I think it also connects with something else that's a, a theme of the book and a theme of my thinking about how philosophy can play a role in what's in effect a kind of self-help, which is to say what we're aiming for in self-help is to live better lives. It's not just some private condition of happiness that's unrelated to other people. It's about living the way we should and trying to relate to other people in the right way. And there again, I think the idea that's really helpful to me is that there aren't clear lines between what we'd ordinarily think of as morality, like showing respect for other people, and the most deeply meaningful sources of fulfillment in our lives, like close relationships, they're at root deeply connected in a way that I think it's sort of liberating to see those kinds of connections and to sort of try to incorporate them into your own life. So Kieran, one of the things that I find amazing about loneliness is that actually coming out of the pandemic, I'm dramatically less lonely than I was before. Because during the context of the pandemic, I got much more conscious about building friendships and relationships. And I, frankly, I got to be a much better person. I've become much more friendly and open and caring about the people I interact with in my daily life. You know, whether it's the woman that works at the grocery store that I was talking to yesterday about classic literature, you know, or, or waitstaff I encounter, I've just, I've kind of made all these 
friendships, if you will, across the whole spectrum of my life. And it's actually sort of made me more hopeful about society and how we might come together and how maybe the pandemic is going to make us understand the importance of one another at a different level. And one of the, I think it's the final chapter of your book is about hope. And I don't know what I'm asking you per se, but but <laughs> I would love to hear you riff on the concept of hope a little bit because we could use some. This was a case where I, on the one hand, I, I wanted to end the book with something constructive. I mean, each chapter has constructive things to say, but I thought, well, let's, let's end somewhere constructive. But actually, hope is funny because I also think it's an object of ambivalence for lots of people, and it is for me. So when I think about hope, I think, on the one hand, this is some, a deeply important enabling relationship to the world. And on the other hand, it's easy to associate hope with sort of wishful thinking. Like, I just hope it will all work out is not an inspiring sort of stance towards the world, but it is an attitude of hope. And so I went back to the sort of history of thinking about hope, and this ambivalence goes back very far. So if you think of the famous appearance of hope in the myth of Pandora's box or Pandora's jar, she releases all the ills of life from this jar onto humans. This is Zeus's revenge for the theft of fire. And she traps hope. And there's something very funny about that. So it looks like what's happened there is that hope was in the jar of evils. And in fact, Hesiod in works and days where this myth, one of the places where this myth appears, he seems to think, yeah, hope is a narcotic. It just makes you idle and lazy. He has a very negative view about hope. But lots of us want to read that as saying, no, no, the thing we have left to fight against all the ills of life is hope. We, we sort of, it's simultaneously a kind of threat and something we cling to. And I sort of wanted to work through that ambivalence. One way to, to sort of do it is to make a distinction that I think is really helpful. And I found in the medieval philosopher Aquinas, he's making a distinction between hope as a kind of passion, a state of feeling, he calls it an irascible passion. And for him, the theological virtue of hope, kind of a virtue of how you approach the world. And I think that's a really useful distinction. Like the state of hoping for something involves sort of wanting it, thinking it's possible, it's not inevitable, you can't necessarily control it. Is that valuable? Well, not if it doesn't lead you to do anything. It may be a precondition of doing anything that you hope for it, but hope by itself can be totally passive. There's nothing particularly valuable about hope. What matters is what hope then leads you or enables you to do. The virtue of hopefulness, on the other hand, I think really is something deeply important. And I think even though for Aquinas, he's thinking about sort of the hope for eternal life, it has this theological context. There's a kind of secular version of that where we can think about a virtue of relating to the possibilities in the world around us in the right kind of way, not being overly optimistic. I think hope and optimism are two different things. You can hope even when you're pessimistic and you think the odds are very low, but also not being too dismissive of possibilities. And that really the question here that's clarifying is really not, is hope a good thing? Which is the question I sort of started with. I'm ambivalent about it. Is it good or bad? I think the real question is not whether we should hope, is it good, but what we should hope for. And the virtue of hope is about figuring out what to hope for, what the right things are to hope for. And that partly involves really learning and attending to the world around us. So in cases like the one you're describing, what I think is there's the sort of, I hope to be less lonely, or I hope loneliness is less of a problem for people. Yeah, we all hope that, sure. But what happened to you was a sort of learning about what realistically you could hope for that would make a difference, like how to direct that hope so that it actually changes things. Part of what you were forced to do by the pandemic, and I was forced, and many people were forced to do, was to say, well, I can't hope to spend time with my family in person. What can I hope for? And that's the right kind of question. I think that's the way to think about hope. There's always something to hope for, but hope by itself is neither good nor bad. It's it's what is it for? What are you aiming it at? And that, I think, is a kind of reframing that I find very helpful. And then remembering at the end that you know, hope isn't the end of the story. Hope is precondition for then trying to make a difference in your own life or in, in the life of other people. Yeah, well, at the beginning with the with the lightning round, I meant I asked you hope or courage, and you went with courage, which seems like courage is the active part of hope. 
I did that partly because, yes, I'm ambivalent about hope. And also because I think you're right that when you think about hope as a virtue, not just as sort of sitting back and thinking, I hope hope something great happens, but as a kind of active attempt to figure out where to direct your hope. Often courage is a central part of that. Like one of the things I struggle with about hope myself is that often I'm afraid that if I hope for something good and it doesn't work out, it's going to be more painful than if I just resigned myself to things not working out. And as a result, I risk not directing my hope where I should be directing it and therefore not making space for action that I should be taking. And yeah, I'm just being cowardly about it. I'm not, I'm afraid of the disappointment. And I think, yeah, that's a case where I think the virtue associated with hope is very much entangled with courage and honesty about the world. And sort of these virtues fit together very closely, I think. You talk a little bit in the book about Aristotle and the notion of the good life. And he has this sort of like limited view of that, that it's lacking nothing. There's nothing missing, which is very vague. His description of a good life is not necessarily what I would have described. And you listed a few other people, like modern people who have lived, you know, quote unquote, a good life from your perspective. And it does seem like there's a theme in those life narratives that there is some hopeful view of creating something better and then choosing to take action. So I wondered if there are any particular individuals in recent history that could help us think about hope in, in a different way. That's a great question. I mean, one thing that about hope in particular that I found very inspiring was a great quote, a great thing that Greta Thunberg said, I think, at the World Economic Forum at Davos, speaking to the kind of people who were at the World Economic Forum at Davos. She said, I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. And uh, there was something about that that seemed, that, that seemed right to me about capturing my ambivalence about hope. At the same time, I think, well, she doesn't want you to be blindly hopeful. To dismiss hope altogether would be a mistake. So someone I found very interesting here, it, there's a book by Rebecca Solnit called Hope in the Dark. It was written, I think, in the aftermath of the Iraq War. But anyway, it became a bestseller again in the last five, seven years. And that's a really interesting case study because I think some of what she says about the nature of hope, I think, is a little well, too optimistic about the way in which hope inevitably leads to action. But mostly what that book consists of is a retelling of the history of the recent past, where it's very easy to look at all the things that failed, all the you know, attempts to come up with a climate accord that didn't happen. And she talks about all the things that could have happened that would have been worse, and all the little successes that were achieved. It's exactly an exercise of this virtue of saying, look, Maybe you can't always hope for the very best, but we have to get used to asking, well, what can we realistically hope for? And going for that, and then being grateful when it happens and being aware that things could have been worse. So she's someone I think is sort of, in terms of thinking about hope in particular, even though I, I criticize her in the book in a way, I think she's a very inspiring figure on that front. I mean, the other thing I wanted to say about just the general issue of a life lacking in nothing is, I do talk about particular people in the book and say, well, surely this is a good life if anyone has a good life, even though there's all kinds of gaping holes in it. In a way, it was a kind of frustrating thing to have to write because in a way, if I just said my friend Jim, that would have been a better answer, but you don't know my friend Jim. So that was it wouldn't be a very useful answer because part of what I wanted to get across was that there are exceptional individuals who have amazing lives, but actually there are lots and lots of non-exceptional individuals having what are pretty good lives and that it's a distortion in philosophy and in thinking about how to live to get too obsessed with the exceptional individuals. It's tricky because the people I cite, I say, didn't live perfect lives, but they're pretty exceptional people like Iris Murdoch, who's a philosopher, novelist, or Bill Veck, who's this incredible, inspiring baseball executive. They live pretty amazing lives. But lots of people who each of us knows who we can think of as a friend who we think, oh, they've pretty much got it figured out. They're doing pretty well. There's all kinds of things that they're not going to be doing because no one can do everything. But I feel like it's very helpful to think those are my models of what a good life is rather than, you know, this is my hero. I'm going to aim for that, which is risky and often unrealistic kind of way to, to approach life. 
It's interesting, like reading both your books and then reflecting on all the episodes we've done of the show, like how much we point back to the ancient Greeks, like how often we're talking about Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and Plato and Aristotle. And did they just kind of have it figured out and we're just having to repeat the lessons? Is (laughs) Is there something that's that universal? I think they had the questions figured out in a way. I don't think they had the answers figured out. So I think Aristotle is a case where this idea that your life should, a good life should have nothing missing from it. I think this is not a realistic or helpful goal. Or you should think about the ideal life. That's what you should aim for. I think, no, you should try to think of the bad things in your life, how you can make them better, what good things are available. So I think the kinds of answers the sort of ancient Greek philosophers give often I think are are problematic. Same with sort of Stoic philosophers. I think they have a kind of too rosy picture of how just changing your psychology can really immunize you from the difficulties of life. I don't think it can. But I think the questions they're asking are the questions we're inevitably going to keep asking, and think not just in the Western tradition, but in you know, Eastern religious and philosophical traditions too. The question, I think Plato says, this is in translation, says in the Republic, what we're asking is no ordinary question. It's how are we going to live or how should we live? And I think systematically trying to pay attention to that question, as philosophers have done for 2,000 years, that, I think, has got to be a good thing and got to be a helpful thing for us to do. And I think there has to be a way of doing it. And I hope philosophy is sort of recovering ways of doing it that aren't just intellectually interesting, but actually can make our lives better and sort of rebuild the connections between philosophical ethics and you know, self-help that I think weren't really divided until the 17th, 18th century and philosophy became more academic. I think the idea that when you're reflecting on how to live should be making people's lives better should be a no-brainer. And I hope it will be a no-brainer again in the in the future. So as you know, we close the show with asking you to do a little bit, indulge us in a little bit of reverse mentoring. But we heard from your 25-year-old self last time. <laughs> so, okay, so okay. I'm going to simplify <laughs> the question a little bit. So we just talked about looking backwards to ancient philosophers. And if we look forward to the current generation, Gen Z, the young adults that are in your classes at MIT. Uh, Instead of having you project yourself to be 25, I'm going to ask you just, what are the things that you at this point in your life, when you talk to your students who are in their early 20s, what are the things you take away from them that you think we need to learn and hold on to? I feel like this is sort of shifting so rapidly because they've just been through this incredible trauma of the pandemic. And a funny thing is, I think if I try to answer that question now, the answer might look quite different from what it looked like even just three or four years ago. I mean, one thing is that I think they have a a kind of sense of the future and the significance of the future that I don't think I had at their age. I wasn't thinking that the world could seriously change. I thought that I was in a, a moment of of sort of stability, you know, the end of history, or I wouldn't have put it that way. But I didn't anticipate that the world could change radically. And I think it's vividly clear to them that the world can change radically, that it's going to change radically, and that the kind of life they're going to have to face is one in which they both try to cause and try to cope with dramatic change, that the world they're going to inhabit in 20 years is going to be different and it's going to be different for the better or the worse. And I think that sense of possibility, while it's terrifying and calls for courage, is something that I didn't have and I'm learning late to adapt to. And to them, I think it's really, if not native, at least by the time they're in college, they're really sort of accustomed to the idea that the status quo is not going to remain what it is. Think things are going to change radically and that they have to be part of, of changing them in, in the right kinds of ways. In a way, this goes back to the question about hope, which is, I find this a little terrifying, and I expect many young people also find it terrifying. On the other hand, that's the reality, and the question is what to hope for. And giving up hope is not an option. It's figuring out, okay, what is the future we can build towards, but it's going to involve change. And it could be amazing. The possibilities are really wide open, but yeah, scary, but hopeful. Yeah, courage is easy when you get to go back to the status quo. It's not real courage unless you don't know the outcome. Exactly, exactly. Kieran, where can people learn more about you and your new book? Well, I am on the web at ksedia.net, 
And I'm on Twitter at, at Kieran Setia. And if you go to those places, you will see links to buy the book. It's on all of the usual online places. It's called Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. It's out October 2022. And yeah, I also recently started, I guess it's a Substack newsletter. This is a, a kind of new venture for me. It's mostly just musings to myself about reading, writing, and life. So you can also find me on Substack at, I guess, ksetia.substack.com whatever the suffix is, and find little bits of writing there as well as on my website. And you also have a podcast. I do have a podcast. So we're in, approaching the end of season three. It's called Five Questions. And this was my pandemic project, was to interview philosophers about themselves. So it's a little bit about their work, but it's often about why they do the kind of work they do or what kind of people they are and what that has to do with their philosophical interests. And it was sort of an attempt to recreate one of my favorite things in philosophy, which is after someone gives a talk and you go out for drinks and dinner and you kind of slide from asking them questions about their talk into asking questions about their intellectual trajectory into asking invasive personal questions or or not but you know just asking anything and that is something i really missed during the pandemic when in the era of zoom talks and and really wanted to try to to recreate fantastic it's always great to talk to you. You've got to write another book so you can come back on and talk to us some more. <laughs> I'll get to work on it. It's a blast to talk to all of you, and uh, I really appreciate you inviting me back. I tell you, we've talked to Kieran two times, and both times I've walked away with a lot of just really new ways of looking at life. I'm curious, Meredith, let's start with you because you've dealt with migraines for a very long time and it's it's been kind of like the center of your life for some time. So curious what you learned from Kieran and dealing with that chronic pain. You know, more than anything, I and, and he kind of said this, I just felt like I had a connection to him in a way that I hadn't had before, which I thought was really nice is, you know, it was like empathy upon empathy, which I think was really good. But I like what he has to say in terms of chronic illness doesn't necessarily define you or has to define your life, right? Like it is a part of you and it is going to be a hard part, but that's not all of you and that's not the whole you. And I think when I read that in the book and when I got the opportunity to talk to him about it, it just really kind of drove the point home as you have an obstacle, but many other people have other obstacles that I don't have. And so take the obstacle, handle it, deal with it as best you can and be able to articulate with other people what that obstacle is. And I think being more communicative and open with people is going to hopefully garner a little bit more maybe appreciation for people that have invisible illnesses or chronic illnesses, or at least help educate people in a way that isn't just like me, 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 or this, 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 but like, hey, 30 to 40 people have something going on. You might not know what's happening with everybody every day. Maybe just ask them how they are or tell you how they are and be honest about it. Bob, you had some thoughts about how mental illness also fits into this category of of thinking as well. I actually think the point he made in the book about kind of these invisible conditions that are vying for someone's attention versus true physical disabilities that are observable to outsiders, that that's an interesting and very different group of things. And he talks about people with, with true infirmities disabilities, that we should think of them almost like a minority and they need to, you know, we need to respect them and account for their needs like we might a minority. But the invisible stuff, whether it's mental health or chronic conditions, that's a that's a different one. And I think it does require us all to open our awareness, be more thoughtful about the people that we're interacting with, realize that what we see is not the whole picture, you know, and perhaps it's an opportunity to exercise a little bit of self-compassion and say to ourselves too, like, hey, I've got this thing that's going on with me today and my body's making demands and I, I'm not a 10 out of 10. My body's eating up, you know, four of my points right now. And I need to be comfortable with that myself. And perhaps I need to be comfortable with telling other people that because likely they're going to cut me slack as well. I mentioned it a little bit in the, in the interview. I found it interesting 
again, reflecting on the Brad Stahlberg episode, thinking about what Kieran wrote in his book, some of my own experiences that when you put it out there, what's really going on with you, you feel like it's going to be awkward and embarrassing. And it's exactly the opposite. When you open yourself up to vulnerability, and obviously Brene Brown talks a lot about this, when you're actually truly vulnerable and put yourself out there, you end up being so much more tightly bonded to the people around you. It's really powerful. I felt that with Kieran because reading the book and he goes into great detail about the pain that he deals with on a regular basis and how he just can't sleep. And, you know, we've spent a couple hours with him, but I felt like, you know, I got to know him a little differently through this conversation and through the book. Yeah, I think it's very powerful to be forthcoming to kind of let your guard down and, and let people know about these things. It's not always a, a good fit for everybody, but uh, you know, when it makes sense, there's opportunity there. Well, it makes you a more complete person. It makes you more of a three-dimensional person. And then to kind of riff on where he was going with loneliness and friendship, you know, it means that people can accept you in totality. They can see the completeness of you and they can truly respect and love you for who you are, knowing the positives and the negatives. But it requires you to kind of open yourself up and share the whole thing. And then you can be loved for being you. Yeah, what a germane topic to dig into loneliness because, you know, just when we recorded this, we're coming out of the pandemic. And I think everyone's kind of still carrying the scars of loneliness. How did that affect you during the pandemic? Did you feel a sense of loneliness, Bob? You said you felt the opposite. You felt more connection than usual. But Meredith, did you feel more isolated? Mm, no. And I think that's because I felt like because of my move from San Francisco down kind of into the country, I felt like I had already had that moment of loneliness. And so I was like ripe and ready by the time the pandemic came to start actually wanting to engage with more people. But I know like, I, you know, I just experienced at a different time. You know, when you look at just, if you look at the table of contents for the book, he's got uh, infirmity, loneliness, grief, failure, injustice, absurdity, and hope. And in some ways you kind of look at me like, oh, this is all the human condition. But as we, as we talked about, like some of them maybe aren't really endemic to the human condition. Maybe some of them are choices that we're making, you know, hope I took away, like hope is a choice. Like I can't rationalize it. I can't justify it. It's just a way I am choosing to be. And I realize that loneliness is sort of, and I know people have very different situations, but to some degree, loneliness is a choice. And at least for me in the pandemic, because it became normal to talk to people in Zoom as we're doing now or some other online medium, you know, I just went out of my way to connect with people and try to create groups and ways of interacting with others. And so I'm sort of paradoxically probably less lonely at this point in my life than I've ever been because I spend my day talking to people from the comfort of my own home. There's a, a lot of stuff in there that I'm fortunate for, but loneliness is, I, to some degree, I think it's a choice. This is a, a topic that I've been wrestling with because I have a child who wrestles with loneliness. He doesn't quite yet know how to make friendships, how to build them and stick with them. And I think it's a little scary to him too, to be vulnerable uh, because he's kind of wears his emotions on the sleeve. There's a quote in the loneliness chapter that I, I found really interesting. Kieran writes, lonely people tend to be self-critical too attributing social failure to their own faults, not to circumstance. Those studies suggest that chronic loneliness does not correlate with any lack of social skills. And so my child, I mean, he has social skills. He's probably got some social skills still to develop, but you know, that negative self-talk that often comes with loneliness can be debilitating and can get you in a doom loop that's very hard to escape. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, and, and I don't want to diminish that in any way. I think my kids have struggled with that as well. But I'm I'm hopeful, I guess, that there's small ways that people can start to find their way out of that. You know, saying hello to a classmate at school, like, you know, scheduling an online play date. But, it, it, you know, I had a note when I was reading the book that the pandemic kind of left us all painfully out of practice with social interaction. And I remember when the three of us got together in New York for the Tina Roth Eisenberg thing, it was incredibly exhausting to be around people in 3D. And it was also a little awkward for the first you know, day or two. And you have to kind of recover those skills. 
And I know it's harder with younger people and with for lots of folks, but there's some way out of that, maybe getting in shape. Like if you're wildly out of shape physically, you know, it starts with just a walk around the block and you can start to build on that. One of the things that occurred to me when I was reading the chapter about hope was how it intersected with some of the stuff we learned from Dan Pink. And one of the things I took from Dan's book about regret was this interesting way that human beings are able to time travel. You know, and he talked about with regret, you have to be present in the current moment and then project yourself backwards in time to imagine a different decision and then project yourself forwards to imagine a different outcome. And then you compare that outcome to where you are now. It made me realize that like, as human beings, we actually sort of live in this fourth dimension of time, which I don't think other animals do. I have no evidence that my dog lives in the fourth dimension of time, but I do all the time, so to speak. And I felt like hope was a little bit of that as well. Like for me to be hopeful, I have to project myself forward in time and compare that outcome to where I am now and maybe imagine different outcomes and say, well, I'm hopeful that that outcome is going to happen. And I don't really know what to make of that beyond just this notion that like, wow, it's kind of fascinating that as human beings, we do travel in time as just sort of our normal conscious being and that that opens us up to all sorts of stress and anxiety and uncertainty. In fact, anxiety is exactly time travel. Kind of comes back to that. I guess maybe it's a way of me telling myself again, like really just be present. Try to be here in the moment. It's okay. And it's very hard not to time travel. Be here now. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Maraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.